and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story and for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. I am honored to welcome today's guest, the 19th and 21st Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Morthy. From a young age, Dr. Morthy has been passionate about the human experience of illness and the importance of mental health. Throughout his career, he has worked tirelessly to shine a light on and to help combat what he calls an epidemic of loneliness. In 2020, he published a book about the mental and physical impact of loneliness titled Together, the healing power of human connection in a sometimes lonely world. During the pandemic, he was one of the first public officials to sound the alarm on child and adolescent mental health. He has spoken extensively about the emotional harms of social media and living through a pandemic. His latest initiative highlights the critical role workplaces play in promoting the health and well being of workers and communities. Dr. Morthy, it's refreshing beyond belief to know that our Surgeon General believes, like I do, that mental health is health. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say as a fellow doctor, a fellow internist, just how grateful I am for a member of our profession like you lifting up these issues as well. I know it's not necessarily what we were trained to do in medical school and residency, but it is so important to bring the stories of people across our country who are struggling with mental health to the forefront. So thank you for what you're doing as well. I think you're right that normalizing mental health, normalizing suffering and then arming people with tools to manage their everyday mental health is an essential part of our whole health. And I think you would agree. Yes, absolutely. I often think of our mental health as the fuel that allows us to show up in the world, you know, for our families, at work, at school, and certainly, you know, in our neighborhoods and communities. Yet we often don't prioritize enough how we replenish that fuel, how we protect and preserve it. And there's so many things that happen during our days and during our lives that allow that fuel to leak out, if you will, that drain our energy, that contribute to depression, to anxiety, to other mental health challenges. And so being mindful of what feeds us and also what drains us is essential if we want to protect our most important foundation for health and well-being, and that's our mental health. It's interesting to me that you've talked openly about periods of your life, like in your childhood, when you experienced loneliness yourself. And then in graduate school, getting your medical degree and business degree, you even helped start the Healer's Art, a four-week-long elective meant to help medical students deal with things like burnout, grief, losing a patient, and caring for ourselves as physicians like we care for our patients. Where does that passion come from? I'm surprised that you know about the healer's art. That was such an important part of my experience as a student growing up, and a formative experience. It wasn't part of a sort of 10-year plan that I had to focus on mental health or something like that. Uh, the, to be honest, I was never good at coming up with five or 10-year plans, much less sticking to them. 
But, but I think what happened to me is, you know, I certainly did as a child and later on, you know, as a young adult, I did struggle a lot with senses of loneliness and isolation. I struggled with my mental health more broadly. I don't think I necessarily had words to put to it, though. And I certainly didn't feel comfortable talking to other people about it. You know, even though I, my parents loved me unconditionally and I knew that as a child, I never even shared it with them because I just was ashamed that somehow this meant something was wrong with me. But when I went to medical school, and the reason I ended up starting the Healers Art course at my school, after being inspired by seeing this course in action at UCSF, where Dr. Rachel Redman had started it, the reason I did that is I had just come to this point in medical school, which is such an intense experience, and where I came to it with high ideals, and I was seeing something that was disturbing me, which is medical students who are a few years above me, and residents who had graduated medical school and now working in the hospital, who seemed really burned out and disillusioned and cynical. You know, I had come to medicine because I was inspired by what I saw in the clinic that my parents ran when I was growing up. I wanted to build these amazing relationships with patients. I wanted to understand how science could be used to improve people's health. And I wanted to feel good about the work that I was doing, yet I was seeing that the future looked really concerning if I looked at the folks who were a few years above me. So that's when, in having conversations about it, I just, more and more over the years, just started to realize that it's not just about mental health, it's about where mental health comes from. For me, I came to realize that when we are deeply connected with people, when we are deeply connected with purpose, when we are deeply connected to our values, those are the moments where we feel in sync, where even though we may be hit with all kinds of challenges, we may be dealing with real adversity in our life, we can still maintain you know, our own mental health and well-being if we're anchored by people, purpose, and values. And so the healer's art was really, in many ways, it was my effort to help myself remember that and to hopefully create an experience for other people as well that could connect them to people, purpose, and values. It's interesting. You and I have similar stories insofar as I, as a youngster, experienced some anxiety symptoms, depression symptoms, yet I was loved, clothed, housed, educated by a warm family that is still the most important part of my life today. I too didn't feel like I had the vocabulary to express those feelings. I didn't think it was really normal. I didn't even think it was relevant necessarily. It just was the way I felt. And so when I got to medical school up in Boston, I fell in love with the first class where we interview those model patients, those actors. We had to practice delivering bad news too. I mean, I loved the lectures on human physiology and pathology, but I really loved, I was one of those freaks of nature who liked those moments where you had to practice creating rapport with a person and then deliver news that might change the trajectory of their whole lives. And some people thought, oh my gosh, this is awful. And like, what am I doing? And I thought this is the coolest thing ever because this is actually why I want to be a doctor, not just to treat the disease, but to treat the person. And we all experience bad news. We all experience grief. We all experience loss. We all have moods. We have fears. And it's really important to feel connected to one another as the glue for our health and then ultimately for our communities and our families. You and I are actually somewhat similar in terms of our experiences because I also love those moments where we had a chance to connect with patients and have even tough conversations with them. Because the thing about the hard conversations whether, you know, the years that followed, it was about somebody's code status or about end-of-life concerns or about breaking difficult news about a new diagnosis. You see, it felt like profound moments of human connection, you know, where you had the opportunity to hopefully soften the blow of difficult news or find uh, several lightings for people, or even just at the very least, just to be there for them as a comforting presence, not necessarily to fix everything, but to let them know that they weren't alone, that there was somebody who was there to support them unconditionally. 
And that to me was just incredibly powerful, even more powerful than the medical knowledge that we were learning in the classroom or in the anatomy lab. One of the reasons I actually continue to practice medicine, even as I started adding on other commitments and careers, if you will, in my life, was because of that profound meaning. And I just felt like we are so lucky as clinicians to be blessed with the opportunity to build those kind of connections with patients. They allow us to see into their lives and share a moment with them at a time that's so critical in their lives when they're dealing with incredible hardship. And that's just such a privilege. It just kept me in medicine because I felt like I was not only learning from that experience, but I was also, it was grounding me. It was reminding me of what really matters. And when in moments where I would feel like my head was getting lost in policy or in developing and building the organizations I was working on or other things like that, it was those conversations with patients that reminded me of what truly matters in life. And they helped inform actually why I worked on the issue of loneliness and social connection years later, because when I would think about those conversations I would have with patients, especially the ones toward the end of life, where I had the privilege of being with a patient in their last few hours or last few days, you know, what they would talk about and what they would reflect on were their relationships, not how much money they made or how fancy a title they had or how famous they were or how many Instagram followers they had. They would talk instead about the people they loved, about the people who brought joy to their life, the people they wished they had spent more time with, about the relationships that had broken their heart. That would remind me all the time to focus on what matters, on who matters. And it was actually interesting during residency when I was, you know, a young man, you know, 23 years old, I think at the time, 23, starting residency. And going through these intense experiences like all of us do of seeing people my age coming into the hospital with metastatic cancer, seeing patients die after difficult, painful illnesses, seeing patients where I sometimes had no idea what was wrong with them, going through these emotional ups and downs. It was in that moment that I remember thinking, I do not want to wait until some other time in my life to focus on what really matters. I started going home more often to visit my parents. I started putting more time into staying in touch with friends, even if it was just a minute here or a quick two-minute call there. That experience was just such a powerful reminder of what matters in life. And it's often the people in our life and the relationships uh, that we hold. Can you define for me, Dr. Morthy, the difference between isolation and loneliness? I think it's an important distinction. Sure. So loneliness is a subjective term. It's how you feel about the connections you have in your life, and it often results when you feel that the connections you need are greater than connections you actually have. Whereas isolation is an objective term. It's a description of the number of people you have around you. So I might say that if you live in an area where there's only one person around you, that you may be physically isolated. And if you live on a college campus where you're surrounded by hundreds of people or thousands of students, then you're not physically isolated, but people can be surrounded by many people and feel quite alone. And that was actually the experience that I often encountered when I would talk to college students around the country when I traveled as Surgeon General. They would tell me, you know, I'm surrounded by people all the time, but there's nobody who really gets me, who understands me, who I can actually open up to if I'm having a good time or share my joys with. So I feel really alone. That's what they would say. And the flip is true too, which is that even if I just have a couple of people around me, I may not feel lonely at all. It's really about the quality of the connections I have. And that's why I think it's important in our life right now to use that, you know, as an important metric, the quality of our relationships and to say, okay, yeah, I may be connected to people on social media platforms. I might be around people at work. I may be live in a neighborhood that's densely populated. The question is, how do I feel about the quality about my relationships? Are there people in my life who I can truly be myself around? If I'm having a tough time, can I call up somebody and be honest about that? If I'm experiencing real joy, is there somebody I really want to share that with? 
these are the kind of questions I think we have to ask ourselves when we're thinking about social connection in our life. Lucy, I find it helpful to think about three types of relationships, uh, broadly speaking, that we need in our lives. They're intimate relationships. These are our relationships with our spouse, with our best friends, the people who can show up in our lives, you know, whenever we need them, who are right there for us. Then there are friendship circles. These are the folks we may get together with on weekends or evenings. We may go camping with them. We may take holidays with them. They're folks we care about, even though they're not as present in our lives as our intimate relationships. And then the third kind of relationship are community relationships. These are the folks that we may go to work with. We may be in a social organization with them. We may go to church or synagogue or mosque or temple with them. These three types of relationships are important to understand because as human beings, we have a need for all three. It doesn't mean we need tons of folks in all three categories. In fact, we can only often have a few intimate relationships in our life because those take a lot of time. But it helps explain when you understand these why somebody can have a marriage that's really fulfilling but still feel lonely if they don't have good friendships and don't have a community that they feel like they're part of. And the reason that's so important to understand is because if you've got a partner who's lonely, you might think, gosh, is this my fault? Does this reflect something about our marriage or about our partnership that's lacking? And it may not be you at all. It may be the fact that there are other types of relationships that your partner needs. I agree with you that we shouldn't measure our social connectedness by how many followers we have on social media or how many friends we even have. So what would you call the ingredients for a quality, meaningful connection? If you think about the different types of relationships, you don't have to be best friends with everyone. You don't have to be able to divulge your deepest and darkest secrets to an individual in order for them to contribute positively to your sense of social connection. But I would say that some combination of these qualities matter in high-quality relationships. One is having people where you can be real, and that means being yourself, being vulnerable, being open, being comfortable sharing things that may be happening in your life, whether they're good or whether they're bad. I think relationships where you can express kindness and compassion and receive the same are also very important. You imagine folks at work who you might have a relationship with where you're kind to each other, you help one another out. Even if you're not best friends, those are very positive relationships in your life. They help you feel like you're not alone, uh, like you're supported. So on this spectrum, I feel like sort of being real, being vulnerable, the kindness and compassion, being able to give and receive these, these are hallmarks of healthy relationships. By contrast, relationships where we feel like we have to show up as somebody other than who we are, where we feel like we're constantly judged, where we feel scared to actually be honest about what we're going through because we're worried that the other person may not want to be with us or connected to us, those are concerning, right? Those relationships may not necessarily provide us the sense of connection we need to not feel alone. And that's, I think, part of the reason why you see folks in relationships where they feel quite alone despite being in the relationship, because sometimes they don't feel like they can truly be open and vulnerable or be real with the person that they're with. And so that's a, it's not all relationships are healthy for us. There are relationships that can make us feel more connected. And ironically, there are relationships that can make us feel even more disconnected and lonely if we can't show up as who we are. Social media is this gizmo that is supposed to unite us and connect us. But somehow it can make us feel more alone, more disconnected. Why do you think that is? You know, I'm a believer in technology overall is a powerful tool, but technology can help us or it can hurt us. And it depends on how it's designed and how it's used. When it comes to social media, there's no doubt that there are some people who have benefited from its use, reconnected with old friends, found communities where they didn't have anyone who shared their experience or, you know, who wasn't like them. But I worry that for many young people, what I hear from them all around the country 
is that their experience of social media isn't always positive. In fact, many of them say that it makes them feel less connected to themselves and less connected to their friends. But they don't feel like they can get off of it because everyone else seems to be on it. You know, I think that there's a profound challenge we have here because prior generations, including mine, did not grow up with social media. It's easy for us to maybe look at what the current generation of young people are going through, of high school students or college students, and say, well, maybe if they just had more willpower, then they wouldn't be subject you know, to some of the negative impacts of social media. But that's not an acceptable explanation or approach because uh, the truth is these platforms are designed by some of the best product engineers in the world to draw us in, to maximize how much time we spend on these platforms. And what can happen a lot of times is, and this is what kids tell me, is they feel like they're drawn into this culture of comparison where they're constantly, constantly comparing their looks, their life experience, their accomplishments, how much money their parents have, like so many different factors to other kids. And of course, we know that what we see online is highly curated, right? People airbrush their photos. They only post their best experiences. But despite that, it can make people feel worse about themselves and again, worse about others. So we don't understand enough about just how deeply these platforms are impacting our mental health and well-being and which people are most impacted negatively. We also don't understand enough about what types of usages are most associated with negative outcomes. This is one of the reasons why I think it's so important that companies that run these platforms, that they're transparent with the public, with young people, with their parents, with all of us about the mental health impacts of social media. We haven't had that transparency yet. And I say that in part because that is what researchers across the country tell me time and time again. They say, we want to study this. We are worried based on the data we are seeing, but we are not getting the full data set that we need from these platforms in order for us to really make the kind of recommendations that we need. And that's deeply worrisome. Lastly, I just imagine this, you know, you and I are both doctors and we prescribe many medicines over the years, right? Like imagine if there was a medication that somebody created in their backyard and made available for free to billions of people and people started using it, thinking that it's going to make their lives better. But then when we asked, hey, by the way, what is the data on whether this works, on who it helps and on what the negative or adverse effects may be, we were then told nothing to see here. We would say that it's absolutely unacceptable. Like we, of course, we need to understand the data before we allow widespread use. Yet that is the grand national and I would say global experiment that is happening with social media an experiment that's taking place with all of us as the subjects. And it is well past time that we had transparent data so we understood the impacts on all of us. It's a good analogy because for many people, social media is a drug. I've started asking my teenage patients and young adult patients, and frankly, other patients, not just how much alcohol do you consume, how much sugar and vegetables do you eat, but how much are you consuming on the internet? How many hours a day are you online? And not only how many hours, but what kind of interactions are you having and how do you feel about that? How easy is it for you to turn the screen off? Or is it like a stickiness that some people have with a different substance? Because I do think the algorithms are designed to serve us up more of what we want. It hits that dopamine pleasure center. And some kids are just more susceptible than others. So I think one thing I'd love to see in the U.S. Preventative Task Force recommendations is that we not only ask teenagers about sexual health and behaviors and alcohol and drugs, but also about screen time and their relationship with screens. Well, I think it's a really interesting idea. And I think, you know, speaking just for myself, I do think that this is important for us to assess, especially among young people, is what their experience of digital technology is in terms of volume, in terms of quality. Because we're increasingly seeing story after story, data after data set, that for some people, there's a real impact on their mental health and well-being. 
I think it's very hard for many people to just draw clear boundaries and say, I'm only going to use a platform or be on social media for 20 minutes. And again, these platforms were specifically designed to draw us in and to keep us hooked. And so we're asking our kids in some ways and all of us to pit ourselves against the best product engineers in the world. That is not a fair game. And that is why our kids lose out so much. And or I particularly worry about this is at night, right? When a lot of people, including young people, will go to bed with their phones and the last thing that they do is something on their phone. And again, because it's so hard to detach ourselves from this, it can eat into our sleep. And we know just how much data has piled up showing us that sleep is critical for our mental health, for our physical health, for how we perform in school and in the workplace. And when the sleep of our children is, in a sense, chipped away because they're using their phone or their social media platforms extensively at night and they can't get off of it, that's not good for them, you know? And so again, but these simple boundaries are hard to just state and then follow. It's why we need, you know, technology companies to be partners in this process, to be open and transparent and honest about what the data is showing. And it's why also, Lucy, I believe that we need safety standards. Most of the products in my house, in my kitchen, in my living room, in my kid's bedroom, had to fulfill some safety standard to ensure that it was okay for consumers to purchase. Where are the safety standards around social media that are telling us what is safe for our children to use? And one other thing I would say on this is about the age. Many of these platforms can be utilized by individuals when they're 13 years of age or older. Why do we think 13 is the right age level? You know, we're taking kids at one of the most vulnerable times in their life when they're developing their brain, their body, their sense of identity, and then we're subjecting them to an experience where they are comparing themselves constantly to other people, where they're barraged by all kinds of information constantly, and where it's difficult for them to get off these platforms. So I do think that, look, the youth mental health crisis is driven by many factors. I think technology is one of those factors. And I think in five or 10 years, we will look back on this moment and recognize that the way that we have handled technology and our kids up until this point has been a colossal failure. I think that we have failed to protect our children and to understand the danger that's really at hand here. And that's why I've been focused so much on the issue of youth mental health and on technology as part of that, because I think it's high past time for us to step up and to address the factors that are driving for youth mental health. To me, mental health has been one of the biggest casualties of the COVID-19 pandemic. Going through a global crisis, being in a constant state of hypervigilance, rearranging our lives, losing loved ones to the virus, dealing with day-to-day -day uncertainty, lost jobs. It's an unprecedented moment in our history. What do you think are the key foundations that we need as individuals to recover our mental health as we emerge into this brave new world? It's a really important question, Lucy, and I, I want to acknowledge for a moment just the incredible loss that people have sustained during this pandemic. Many people, myself included, lost loved ones to COVID-19. Many had loved ones who got really ill and were hospitalized, and they they've worried about what was going to happen to them. And even if no one that you loved got seriously ill, our lives were turned upside down in so many ways. We had to homeschool our kids in the early days of the pandemic. Many people lost their jobs, and many people weren't able to get together and see their friends and family, which is such a vital part you know, of sustaining us. In some ways, I don't think that we have fully recognized or grieved those losses that we have sustained. I think in a rush to move on, that time to process those national moments of healing, those small moments of healing within neighborhoods or families, I don't think it fully happened, but I think it's important. And as we look to rebuild our lives going forward, I actually think we have an incredible opportunity because 
we don't just have to go back to the way things were in 2019. We have an opportunity to take what we learned from this pandemic and build a life that's even more fulfilling, healthy, and to be even more resilient going forward. And to me, there are three core components of that. There are the relationships that we build. And I think we have a chance to shift from a life that for many of us, myself included, has been largely centered around work to a life that's actually centered around people, around our relationships with family and friends. And again, that's about where we put our attention and our energy and our focus. The second thing we have an opportunity to do is to build a life that's centered around purpose. And purpose doesn't have to mean that we are quitting our job and joining an organization that's trying to save the world. If you want to do that, that's wonderful. But purpose can also be found in service, in helping the people around us, coworkers in our workplace, our neighbors who may be struggling, family members who may be having a hard time. We find purpose through our work, through our relationships, through our neighborhoods, through the causes we choose to dedicate ourselves to whether those are big causes or whether those are small moments where we identify folks in need. And the third and final piece of this is our values. You know, moments of crisis are clarifying. They help us understand what really matters in life. And when I think about the values that I want to see embodied in the world that my kids grow up in, that I want to be the anchors for society now and in the future, those values are kindness, their compassion, and their love. And I think when I look around, I worry that too often our world is driven by fear, by anger, and by insecurity. That's not the world that I want for my kids or for any of our children. Being able to anchor on those values is important because to state our values is one thing, to live out our values is another thing. And as I go forward in my life, I find myself thinking about those values of kindness, compassion, love, and how do I reflect those in the causes that I choose to take up and the issues that I choose to speak up about and the actions that I take in my life and how I interact with and treat other people. I certainly am not always perfect. I fall short a lot. But I feel like I have more clarity on those values now than I perhaps have ever had in my life. The pandemic really changed the nature of work for so many people and school. We were isolated from one another, which I think contributed to the mental health crisis, in addition to social media and the other things we talked about. But going back to the work issue, the relationship that people have with their jobs really changed. I think people reconsidered their priorities. I mean, people lost their jobs. People moved closer to family. You know, we don't have a great childcare system in this country, as you well know. And I think this sort of epidemic of what's being called quiet quitting is perhaps reflecting the fact that people no longer want to sacrifice their health and well-being for their work. Now, some of that is a luxury. We can't just quit our jobs and say, I'd rather go to yoga. I think in general, people are reassessing the work-life, quote, balance. Hustle culture was not working for a lot of people. Tell me about this framework that's, to me, really exciting that you've launched for mental health and well-being in the workplace. We spend so much of our lives at work. And I think the reckoning that you're seeing with regard to work as a result of the pandemic is not a reflection of the fact that people don't want to work hard. It's not a reflection of the fact that people don't want to have a sense of purpose in their work. It's a reflection of the fact that people are asking themselves the question, what do they want out of work? And what are they willing to sacrifice for their work? And I think that we can use this opportunity to really strengthen workplaces and to make workplaces engines for mental health and well-being. And when we do so, there are two critical things that result. One is workers are better off. They're healthier. They're happier. But the other thing that happens is workplaces themselves are better off. Organizations have workers that are more productive more creative, or more likely to stay on the jobs so retention rates are higher. It is a win-win for workers and for organizations when we invest in mental health and well-being in the workplace. And we just issued a Surgeon General's framework on workplace well-being that lays out five key essentials 
which form the foundation for mental health and well-being in the workplace. We know, for example, that protecting people from harm is absolutely essential, and too many people go to work and experience either physical harm or psychological harm in the workplace. We know that building social connection and community in the workplace is also essential. There's great data from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton from a professor here, Sigal Barsade, who's extraordinary, who has shown when people feel disconnected from each other and lonely in the workplace, that really impacts their productivity and their creativity. The third area we need to focus on, the third essential, is around work-life harmony. We're all trying to achieve some sense of balance and harmony. One of the things that makes it really tough for workers is when they don't have the ability to take time off when they have a sick child, for example, or when they themselves are sick. That's incredibly stressful. And we bring that stress in with us to the workplace because we are human. And it's not reasonable to expect people not to. But we also know that work-life harmony is about respecting the boundaries between work and non-work. And this is challenging because we have technology that keeps us connected always. And people are checking their work inboxes on weekends, evenings, vacation time. So maintaining the kind of provisions, whether it's boundaries between work and non-work life or whether it's paid leave or living wage, these are critical for work-life harmony. And the last two essentials that I'll mention have to do with mattering at work. We all want to know that we matter and that our work matters, but too many workers show up to work each day and don't feel that. So giving workers a voice at the table, making sure that we're connecting the work people are doing with their mission and with the organization's mission is critical. And this doesn't mean that all of us need to be saving lives at work. If I'm a janitor cleaning floors at a school, I'm doing really important work to make sure that children can come to school every day and learn in a clean and healthy environment. That's really important for my children, but it's important we help people see that meaning. And then finally, there's learning and growth. All of us want to grow. In, we may want to grow in different ways. We may have different visions of what career advancement means, but we all want to grow in some way. And creating the opportunities for people to learn, to get adequate, high-quality feedback, uh, to have opportunities for clear, equitable career advancement. These are part of creating the growth opportunities that everyone needs. So you put these five essentials together, and what they form is the foundation for mental health and well-being. And the reason that I issued this framework is because I have gotten so many questions from employers, from workers, over the last couple of years during this pandemic. One, from employers saying, what's going on in the workplace? What do workers really want? Is this all about pay? Is this all about higher wages? And no, it's not just about wages. It's about a broader set of issues that contribute to well-being. We also wanted the workers to be able to have something they could look at that would help them understand a potential workplace that they were considering for themselves and to understand, hey, does this workplace have the key foundations or the key components that will contribute to mental health and well-being? And workers want this. Look, 81% of workers are saying right now that they want a workplace that supports mental health and well-being. And people are voting with their feet. And this is why I think it's so important for us to seize this moment, to secure this win-win opportunity, and to invest in mental health and well-being in the workplace. I think it's incredibly important. And I think some of this comes from the tone at the top, the leadership, modeling, sort of work-life harmony, as you talked about it. If you're leading a company or leading an organization, you're the head of a school, acknowledging that mental health matters, acknowledging that we care about more than just your work product, and then not just talking about it, but actually doing things, putting into place policies where people are feeling more safe, more cared for, more seen. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. I want to ask you one last thing, because I've heard you talk about the importance of in-person connection, something we really lost a lot of in the pandemic. You know, there's so many nonverbal cues facial expressions that are essential for that human connection. What role do you think in-person work needs to play in building a community and forming a sort of a stable workplace that fosters mental health and well-being? Well, it's such an important question, especially as people are trying to figure out the right balance with in-person versus remote work. 
One thing I think it's important to recognize is it's not one extreme or the other. It's not that we all have to be at work five days a week necessarily or all remote. We have to just understand what the trade-offs are. When we have people at home, we do gain certain benefits in terms of flexibility, reducing commute times, enabling them to be there for their family, which contributes so much to their mental health and well-being, whether that's dropping their kids off from school or being home in time for dinner with their family. But the other thing we have to recognize is that there is a potential downside because that in-person connection is really important too. And you can't substitute for all of in-person connection just with being online. So every workplace has to find their right balance here, how to bring people together in person in ways that allow them to foster real connection, how to do that on a cadence that's actually amenable to workers and that fits with the rest of their life, but also how to create space for those who may have the need for more flexibility in their work life. Maybe somebody has a mother or father who's elderly and ill at home and they need to be there more often to care for them. And it's harder to come in in person to work, but they can still contribute a lot, you know, even being remote. We have to create those opportunities for individuals to work in that way, that flexibility, if you will. I think the bottom line is finding that balance is important. It's going to be different for every company. It's going to be different for different units within a company. But the last point I'll mention, it's so important here, is that bringing workers into these decisions is absolutely essential. Lucy, I know we've had a wide-ranging conversation here on mental health. And you know, I know that it's easy to look at this challenge that we're all faced with right now, how to address the mental health crisis in our country. It's easy to look at that and feel despondent and to say, gosh, this problem feels so much bigger than what we may be able to take on. But I actually, after all the work that I've been privileged to do in this space, I actually feel more optimistic and hopeful than I've ever felt that we can address these problems because I see a greater willingness among people across the country and really across the world to talk about mental health more openly and honestly. I see this bipartisan interest in our country among lawmakers to try to fashion the kind of policies that can truly make treatment more available. I see actions that have already been taken to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into bringing counselors into our schools, making treatment more available in our communities. And we need more of this, no doubt. But I think to truly address this crisis, it will take us recognizing what's going well, but also recognizing the role that we can play as individuals. We have a choice about how we prioritize people in our life. We have a choice about whether we treat individuals, whether they're strangers or coworkers or family members, whether we treat them with kindness and compassion or with anger and fear. It is in those decisions, those small, seemingly small decisions, that we start to alter the social fabric of our lives and the foundation for our mental health and well-being. So we have more power than we think to shape our mental health and the mental health of the people around them. And we don't need a medical degree. We don't need to be a therapist necessarily to do that. We just need the willingness to be kind, to be compassionate, to give and receive love. That is the foundation for mental health and well-being. And we all have the power to bring that to life. It's a wonderful note to end on. I said to a patient this morning that very thing, you have more control than you think you do. Let's talk about how to reclaim agency in your life, because ultimately that gives us the sense of purpose and well-being when we have tools. And I cannot thank you enough for joining me today. And more importantly, for leading these initiatives, for sounding the alarm on adolescent and child mental health, for leading this new initiative on the workplace, and for really centering mental health as we think about our whole health. If you ever need a lieutenant, let me know. Okay, absolutely. And hey, by the way, I'm always looking for good primary care doctors because people ask me all the time, hey, do you know somebody who's good? Are you taking new patients? I wish I could say yes, but I just signed with Simon & Schuster to write this book that I've always wanted to write about Uh the mental and physical health parallel train tracks. Uh I can't believe I just said no to the Surgeon General. No, 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 this is, no, you kidding? You're going to do so much good in writing this book and having written a book, I know that it can like absorb so much of your life. So you're doing the right thing by demarcating time. 
Dr. Morthy, thank you so much again for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.